Uh, welcome to today's program. My name is Glenn Deason, I'm professor of uh, political science. With me is uh, Alexander McCurris from the very popular and informative Duran. And the guest today, back very much by popular demand as well, is Jeffrey Sachs, uh, yeah, renowned economist, uh, former econom economic advisor to Poland, to Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and uh, well, I assume everyone now know who Jeffrey Sachs is. So uh, welcome back, sirs. Good yeah, to see great you. to be with you. Thank you. So uh, the topic we really wanted to cover today was, uh, yeah, well, war in the West, or at least the proximity of the West, and the economic connectivity and development currently happening in the East, mm. especially with this uh, Belt and Road Initiative mm. uh, Summit. Uh, as um, you know, Financial Times wrote only a few days ago that a G7 diplomat uh, argued that the West had lost the battle for the global South. Uh, over its position on Israel and Palestine. And uh, all at the same time as this is happening, of course, we're seeing at the other side of the world, the global south or the global majority, as uh, now often referred to, meet in Beijing for this uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And the quite shocking is yeah, the large absence by the West, which uh, I think only Hungary appeared of all the Europeans uh, with Viktor Orban. And uh, it seems yeah, the West has boycotting it to a large extent, where the, mm -hmm. most of the new economic connectivity is taking place. And I'm, I'm fearful, at least, that it ends up in isolating itself. But uh, mm -hmm. I thought we can start with the uh, conflict uh, going on in Israel and mm -hmm. Palestine first, mm -hmm. because I think we're everyone, well, hopefully everyone was horrified by the Hamas brutal killing of Israeli mm -hmm. civilians. But of course, the context of the the situation the Palestinian lives and the response of Tel Aviv was has also been and continues to be quite horrifying as well. So, uh, Professor Sachs, I was hoping that uh, you could start off by perhaps giving your your overview. Uh, how did this happen, and what do you see being the objective of the West now? Because uh, at least the United States has now vetoed two calls for ceasefire. Where where is this going? Can it be contained? Uh, sorry, it's a lot of questions. Well, yes, indeed, and and it's a lot, a uh, lot on the world's plate right now. And and maybe uh, the UN Security Council is the right place to start because uh, essentially there is a fourteen to one vote right now in the UN Security Council. Uh, fourteen uh, states, uh, including uh, four of the five permanent states, uh, want uh, a ceasefire uh, and want uh, a political resolution of this uh, decades and decades long uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, but the United States uh, is uh, using its veto. This says a lot. Uh, this says that the United States essentially is isolated uh, on this matter. And um, it, it is because we're at the uh, long uh, end of a failed Policy and the failed policy is the same failure uh, in Ukraine. It's the uh, uh, same failure which uh, actually, as you said, has united the world and on the on the other side uh, of uh, uh, the globe uh, in Beijing. Uh, it is uh, the U.S. approach that uh, military dominance uh, uh, it should be used for political dominance uh, and that this will be sufficient to run the show. And that was true in uh, the U.S. and Israel avoiding for decades any real political solution to a uh, 
always uh, extraordinarily hot uh, and uh, difficult uh, conflict uh, between Israel and and Palestine. It's never been resolved. It's it's basically a century old conflict now, since uh, uh, just after World War One, when a Jewish homeland was established under the so-called Balfour Declaration. And from that date till now, there have been two uh, ethnic groups uh, uh, in the same place, uh, and there's never been a political settlement of that most basic issue. And the U.S. position uh, for decades has been, we're the most powerful country in the world, we can do what we want, and uh, allies of the United States have said, we can say what we want and do what we want because the U.S. has our back. It doesn't work. It never solved anything, but it really is unraveling now before our eyes. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in Ukraine, we have a really a crisis that is essentially the same story, which is the United States, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in December 1991 said we can now uh, dominate the political space of uh, the post-Soviet world, maybe not Russia directly, but certainly surrounding Russia. And we'll do that politically. We'll do that militarily with NATO enlargement. And uh, we don't have to talk with Russia or anybody else on that. And this is unraveling also. So we have a basic foreign policy approach of the United States, which is that military power uh, can uh, determine political outcomes. This is always a dubious proposition, but with the declining relative power of the United States, with the rise of China, uh, with the rise of many more uh, countries as regional powers, this whole proposition that the U.S. uh, leads is, uh, uh, is, is completely anachronistic, and it's failing everywhere. But it's fascinating that uh, President Biden has just given a, a dreadful talk to uh, the American people where he uses every cliche of the 1990s, in fact, quotes Madeleine Albright of the, uh, the indispensable nation, uh, as if we haven't had the past 30 years and the unraveling of this whole process. So what we're seeing is is sad, uh, but it shows a, a, a U.S. Uh, leadership that is uh, absolutely without an understanding of, uh, of of the rapidly changing world and has no tools to uh, address it and and uh, you know led I don't led is probably much too strong a word actually but uh, somehow formally presided over by uh, an octogenarian who's especially out of touch uh, and uh, this this doesn't work it's extremely dangerous. The American people do not understand what's going on. The media do not help at all. They only muddy everything. Our internal politics in the United States is a complete mess. As the fight over the Speaker of the House in the House of Representatives demonstrates. So it's a mess. There's a lot of killing and violence taking place. Uh, tensions are high, understanding is low, diplomacy is dreadful. But the, the the one glimmer in this is that there are 14 votes out of 15 in the U.N. Security Council that are pointed in the right direction. 
which is that we need a political settlement in uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And that shows to me something more fundamental, which is that it's not impossible to find a political approach more generally to the world for the uh, this uh, kind of post-neocon era that we're soon to be entering if we don't blow ourselves up uh, in the meantime. I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree with every point just made. Can I say that for me, there's been two things that have stood out most of all about this crisis. We've had many periods before when there's been great violence in the Middle East and it's been awful and this is another one and this one has been particularly awful. But up to now, everybody has looked at the Americans to come up with the solutions. They've been the people who've been coming to the Middle East, they've been brokering or trying to broker or going through the motions of brokering uh, um, agreements and ceasefires and those sort of things. And I think the general consensus everywhere, on every side now, is that the Americans have failed, that they have not managed to move this process forward. And we've had the President of the United States going to the Middle East, and um, instead of making the situation calmer, which is what he should have been trying to do. Instead of taking steps, as far as I can see, to de-escalate, from what I can tell, his visit has, if anything, made things worse. <laughs> he has not been able to speak to the leaders of the Arab states. We've now reached that stage where the Arab states no longer want to speak to the President of the United States, which is something unprecedented in my lifetime. Just before we did this program, there was reports that President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority has now refused a call from President Biden. So the Arabs have had enough of the Americans. The first time, as I said, that the President of the United States goes to the Middle East Nobody's prepared to speak to him. He offers no so no solutions. He doesn't talk about ceasefires. He makes a speech which, exactly as Professor Sachs says, on the Middle East seems to me more like an exercise in ticking boxes rather than coming up with any kind of constructive ideas, and which is full of cliches. He goes off on a tangent discussing Ukraine, Hardly apropos at this time, I mean, it seems to be, and offering no solutions, no real ways forward, just ticking boxes, and exactly as Professor Sachs said, retreating into cliches. Uh, of course, linking Ukraine and uh, and and Gaza was uh, a, a, a not very uh, subtle way to try to uh, push uh, this $60 billion uh, uh, of uh, Ukraine funding uh, through a Congress which is more and more resistant because the American public is more and more resistant. So it was pretty crude. Uh, and it, it was uh, pretty jerry-rigged, uh, as you say in the speech, uh, but also harking back to uh, this idea, bizarre, uninspiring, cliched, America holds the world together, which uh, somehow the rest of the world doesn't quite see. <laughs> you know, they're missing the point. It's, uh, so this is uh, it was it was a uh, pretty pathetic. We'll see. We'll see what happens today when this hundred billion total package uh, hits uh, uh, hit, hits the ground. Uh, but uh, 
that was the linkage made, uh, just a device to somehow bundle uh, very unpopular uh, spending on Ukraine with uh, what could well be more acceptable, though not very wise, spending on Israel right now. So that that's what that was about, obviously. But uh, I'm a bit, uh, well, again, uh, we discussed earlier before the program that this is a very polarized conflict. Uh, you know, you have to choose one side or the other. You know, either you have to support Hamas, apparently, or you have to support ethnic cleansing in Gaza. But I, I was wondering, even if we our point of departure, just to look at the how the world has changed, if our point of departure is, uh, you know, we want to take a pro-Israeli position, only looking at Israel, uh, would it not then be also in the interest of Israel at this point to start to look for a political settlement? Because, well, as Professor Sachs pointed out, uh, for for many years, Israel didn't have to make any compromise, didn't have to accept any political settlement, especially over a Palestinian state, because it had the unconditional support of the United States as the hegemon. But I would say what we've seen now, uh, not just recently, but uh, a wider, longer trend is the relative decline of the United States, losing its influence in the region, the entrance of new actors. We see that Israel itself is becoming more uh, uh, more divided internally. We see allies of Israel becoming more appalled, taking a greater distance after its use of force. Its neighbors are growing stronger. And also the new rising great powers, be China or Russia, uh, none of them going against Israel, but certainly they want a more balanced approach to the region. So my my, my argument is from purely pro-Israeli perspective, uh, if it will be weaker tomorrow, would it not be in their interest to make a deal today uh, in terms of a, uh, a political settlement as opposed to... Uh, you know, going into its deepest conflict at a time when its uh, position is weakening. If if I might start on on that, you know, first on the polarization. Uh, you know, partly it is a, a, a deep human impulse of uh, us versus them mentality and dynamics, but partly it is, of course, a propagandistic uh, game. Uh, and Orwell explained it very, very well in uh, 1984, his his book, not the date of that book, uh, but in the 1940s, uh, that uh, you obliterate the past so that you can propagandize uh, the present uh, and, and the future. And uh, anyone that is aware of the past, whether it is the past regarding uh, Ukraine and the war and its antecedents and causes and provocations, or the hundred years of strife uh, in Israel-Palestine, uh, well, then you know that this polarization is phony. Uh, it's an attempt to make you take uh, stark sides uh, in what is a very uh, uh, deep, complex issue which needs a proper resolution uh, politically, not uh, by uh, a, a simple uh, military uh, uh, control by one side or the other. So the first point of this polarization is we would not be so polarized uh, if there was a, a, a proper uh, accounting of history and background and uh, some memory of that, which uh, we're told repeatedly by uh, the, the 
dominant narratives of power don't have memory. Listen to us. Uh, This is out of the blue. This is pure evil. This is whatever it is, rather than trying to understand what this is about. But on the question of uh, Israel's well-being, it's not just now. Uh, I would say it it goes back decades and decades that uh, many powerful parts of uh, leadership of uh, the Israeli political system has resisted a political settlement because the belief was variously, we don't have to settle. It's too dangerous to settle. The land is all ours anyway. Different variants, uh, different uh, beliefs, but the political system has always uh, uh, weighed against a real political settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, leading to uh, the much discussed and never realized two-state solution. And that goes back many, many decades. And Israel's been divided over this uh, for a long time. And uh, back after the uh, Six-Day War in June 1967, this debate uh, raged what to do with this captured territory. And the prevailing answer was one way or another, the Israel needs to control this for the long term, whether through annexation or through settlements or through subterfuge or through uh, creating a, a Palestinian enclave uh, that doesn't have a real uh, statehood, whatever it is, the, the effective decision was taken a long time ago, don't have a two-state solution, Uh, always blame the other side uh, for the lack of that solution. But that was the decision taken to start uh, settlements uh, uh, of Israelis uh, in the occupied territories. Uh, Those settlements now uh, number in the hundreds with hundreds of thousands of of Israelis in the West Bank, uh, hundreds of thousands uh, couple hundred thousand plus uh, in East Jerusalem. This was a, a plan. And the plan was military power and dominance will be sufficient, especially with the U.S. backing. It never made sense. Uh, and it uh, it's unraveling now tragically, disastrously, awfully. But the U.S. is absolutely unaware of the unraveling, or I'd say the president of the United States is clearly unaware of the unraveling, but the unraveling is uh, occurring at uh, alarming speed. And as we see the the, the uh, mass destruction of Gaza taking place right now, the unraveling will only uh, intensify in the coming days because what's happening now is absolutely shocking. I'm going to make a few observations. I mean, I've been reading extensively the Israeli media, and I have been surprised and impressed, actually, by how much more sophisticated the discussion in Israel about this whole situation is. There's much more perceptions within Israel of the fact... I I go through a lot of the Western media as well as the Israeli media, and uh, if, if you read the Haaretz, for example, uh, almost uh, almost on a daily basis, you will find articles which are quite 
um, which are quite uh, critical of the policy. Uh, now, I wouldn't frame it as being anti-Israeli, because the main argument is, you know, by forcing uh, people in Gaza to live in this in this manner, to essentially set them up in what now, you know, some resemble uh, well, open-air prison or concentration, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there also is criticism, even from, I think it was a former head of Mossad who referred to it as an apartheid state, given that you have two different sets of rules and laws for, uh, you know, Jewish versus the Palestinian citizens. So it's... Uh, it's uh it's 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 quite surprising that uh, they 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 allow for this or they have this some plural pluralism or some debate at least with within Israel in terms of defining you know their interests is you know, what is the pro-Israeli policy and it feels like they at least they have the discussion of what should be defined as such but uh, one gets the impression that in the West we locked ourselves down which we often do in foreign policy by the way is if you support Israel then you support the the you know the being pro-Israel against the Palestinians, you know to some extent uh, we see this across many conflicts. We see in Ukraine as well. If you're pro-Ukraine, that means you know you have to support the toppling of their government. You have to support the anti-terrorist operation against their own people. You have to you have to support uh, uh, you know sabotage of peace agreements. You have you know a lot of policies which actually aren't very pro-Ukrainian at all. And I just feel like we see the same now with uh, with Israel. Uh, how what is the background of this? So why do you see, uh, is, is there something to the foreign spectator that makes things more polarized uh, or in defining things more as us versus them? Well, uh, of course, uh, uh, Israel has been deeply divided on this issue for decades. Uh, there has been uh, uh, a peace movement in Israel for decades and a peace movement in this context means uh, the push for a political settlement uh, that typically uh, calls for a Palestinian state alongside uh, Israel. So that division has uh, been there for half a century and, and indeed more. Uh, and uh, before the Hamas attack, uh, Israel was uh, absolutely uh, uh, out on the streets uh, in the bitterest political conflict between the supporters and opponents of the Netanyahu uh, government uh, over uh, not exactly this issue, but uh, uh, the part of the public that despises Netanyahu uh, as a politician uh, who believes that he is corrupt, uh, power-seeking, unprincipled, uh, and that brought hundreds of thousands of Israelis uh, out on the streets. So uh, this is one of the uh, 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 points that weakened uh, Israel in the lead up to these events. The guard was down because Israel itself was uh, at each other's throats, actually, uh, over internal political conflict. So in, in one sense, the divisions are, are uh, uh, longstanding. In another sense, they have never led to a solution, uh, in part because uh, the, the U.S. Uh, has uh, always uh, encouraged Israel to say, you don't have to compromise, we have your back. Uh, uh, pretty much the same uh, that occurred uh, uh, in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Russia 
the United States said to the Ukrainian government, you don't have to compromise. You don't have to negotiate. Uh, we have your back. Of course, the United States doesn't have anybody's back right now. Uh, Ukraine uh, is in the process of being destroyed with the U.S. at its back uh, because uh, the U.S. position does not make sense. And the Ukrainian uh, uh, decision to uh, pursue uh, NATO membership rather than neutrality makes no sense for Ukraine's own interest and security. But it's been this call by the United States, you don't have to compromise, that uh, leads to this uh, very strange political dynamic. Now, what happens in the United States? Well, our politics are very far removed from ground realities uh, in either the Middle East or in Ukraine. So the understanding of the dynamics are uh, very low. The quality of political discourse in the United States is absolutely dreadful. The historical knowledge is basically non-existent. And the mindset of the U.S. leaders for many decades is essentially built on arrogance, which is uh, the most powerful country in the world can turn that military power into political outcomes as desired. Well, you would think after uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Laos, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Ukraine, and the Middle East, the United States may have gotten the idea, eh, not such a great idea, maybe diplomacy would be helpful rather than assertions of the U.S. as the indispensable nation and all these other cliches. But seemingly, uh, at least in the political class in the United States, there is a such a collapse of uh, understanding and knowledge that uh, cliches seem to be the, the last uh, hold of uh, the U.S. political class in Washington right now. There's just no proper understanding of what's happening. And maybe a not insignificant part of this is the selling of arms became the business of the United States. And we see it. <laughs> it's this literal role of the military contractors and their lobbyists uh, also hijacking a lot of U.S. foreign policy. So that's actually part of the story as well. Uh, Lockheed and uh, Northrop Grumman and uh, Boeing and General Dynamics and Raytheon uh, getting hundreds of uh, billions of dollars of military contracts over the years and uh, exercising extraordinarily lobbying weight uh, in, over U.S. politics. One of the remarkable things we've seen in uh, this uh fight over the next Republican uh, uh, Speaker of the House uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives is that the chairman of the uh, House Armed Services Committee, uh, who's basically uh, the recipient of the largesse of the military industrial complex, is negotiating that the incoming speaker will support proper funding 
for Ukraine and uh, and uh, presumably uh, Israel, uh, meaning that you see the handiwork of the military industrial complex and the uh, arms contractors and their lobbyists at work in the uh, interstices of the day-to-day political machinations in Washington, that plays a big role, especially in uh, an election year. Uh, And uh, we're entering the one year uh, till 2024 right now. So all eyes are on uh, campaign contributions. So this is another part of uh, the bizarre story right now. So I'd say on the U.S. side, it's incredible ignorance long distance from ground realities, a complete unawareness of how the rest of the world has changed and moved on. Because, you know, my job is to be working with governments around the world. And I know that Washington has no understanding of the perspectives of the rest of the world at all. So it's that complete absence of in-depth knowledge, understanding of the local realities long-standing hubris and overbelief in uh, the ability of military power to define political outcomes and the weight of the military-industrial complex, it all adds up to uh, quite a mess uh, in uh, poor, uh, I'd say, even uh, disastrous decision-making in Washington. Well, speaking of, uh, well, failing to uh, appreciate the you know, changing realities in the world. Uh, obviously, as uh, things are stagnating in the West, we see now in the East, there is a huge uh, economic changes in the international economic infrastructure. Uh, we, we, we've spoken before, the three of us, about BRICS, uh, this grouping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, obviously an important institution to decentralize the international economic system. Of course, now with six more states being, you know, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and UAE. Uh, UAE. We have a, you know, this takes on a huge format and, you know, this accommodates everything from tech, you know, the diversifying or decentralizing technologies, uh, industries, transportation corridors, banks, currencies uh, across the board. Uh, but at the moment, we also have had this meeting now, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, in, with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is quite, uh, quite fascinating. This is, uh, well, effectively the whole world except the west uh represented and uh, uh well this is uh, all these initiatives they seem like uh, uh you know a huge potential to make to reduce the dependence only on one central power uh however uh my question was about a comment you made at a conference uh, we were recently both at which was uh you 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 argue that one should be careful that this doesn't uh, end up dividing the world into blocks, which I found was very interesting because uh, uh, certainly we don't want a repeat of this. Whenever countries express their loyalty to exclusive blocks, it amplifies this zero sum logic of us versus them. So how 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 do you see this? Do you see all the initiatives? Uh, well, 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 what do these economic initiatives in the East mean? Do you see? us reverting to block politics, or do you see this being more inclusive and you know pacifying uh, international rivalries? Of course, the direction right now uh, is uh, towards uh, divided blocks, but uh, that is, uh, uh, I'd say, a, a U.S. approach, a completely wrong-headed one, again, based on a total miscalculation and misunderstanding of ground realities, essentially based on 
the idea that the U.S. still predominates, that the U.S. still leads, as Biden said again. But he's living in a different world. It was it was delusional then, in my view, but it's completely anachronistic now. And I think it's extremely important to understand some basic uh, facts, just a, a couple of things very, very quickly. Uh, at the beginning of the 1800s, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, Asia accounted for around 60% uh, of world output. Uh, the North Atlantic region, meaning today's Europe, uh, UK, and uh, United States and Canada, maybe 25% of world output or so. During the 19th century, because of industrialization, that flipped uh, and the West became the dominant power of the world. That was a deep historical reversal. And uh, the West dominated military and industrial power uh, from uh, essentially uh, around 1800 with the rise of industrialization, reaching its uh, apogee of uh, power, I would say, uh, in, in the certainly in the first half of the 20th century, but uh, then two of the most destructive wars in history, essentially uh, the first one, a, a European civil war, uh, the second one, uh, a European civil war and an Asia-Pacific War provoked by industrial Japan uh, meant that 1950 was a turning point uh, in history, uh, in world economic history. It was the maximum uh, advantage, uh, even after the two world wars, of the West over Asia. But at that moment, with India's independence and the founding of the People's Republic of China and what would soon be the end of the French Empire uh, in uh, Asia and uh, the end of uh, European uh, empires in Asia more generally, you see what we call economic convergence. And that means that Asia, uh, for decade after decade after decade, uh, developed economically and technologically faster uh, than the North Atlantic region, narrowing the gap catching up because there was headroom. They were so far behind. It was uh, an impoverished region. Uh, and over the course from 1950 till today, Asia's catching up with, with, with uh, the West so that the West no longer predominates. The mindset of the West continues. Nostalgia is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, Britain, with all respect, still thinks it's an empire <laughs> still thinks it runs the world. Uh, you know, the press and, and uh, the British politicians uh, struck the world stage. Uh, it's been a long, long time since that made any sense. And the United States is uh, roughly in the same position, but lagging behind a bit right now. And what happened is China became a larger economy than the United States already many years ago. If both economies are measured at a common set of prices, what we call purchasing power adjusted prices. And the BRICS, as you mentioned, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, those five already were larger than the G7 countries in recent years. Roughly, according to the IMF's estimates, again, at 
common international prices or purchasing power parity, the BRICS-5 were 32% of world output compared to 30% of world output of the G7, which is the US, Canada, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. And so already this change had taken place. Now you add the six new members of the BRICS, and it's 37% of world output, according to the IMF data, compared to 30% of the G7. We're in a different age right now. And China is exceedingly sophisticated in its diplomacy and on the right track because the Belt and Road Initiative, which is in its 10th anniversary and its third big summit, now engages 150 countries around the world, developing 21st century connected infrastructure. And uh, when you read uh, the commentaries and the analysis uh, out of China in the context of this uh, third BRICS forum, it's absolutely on target and highly sophisticated. They call it multidimensional connectivity because it's energy, it's transport, and it's digital. China is at the cutting edge of all three of those technologies. It is putting hundreds of billions of dollars of finance because China is a high-saving society to the development of this infrastructure. The U.S., <laughs> badmouths the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, oh, it's a debt trap. It's something stupid. And, and uh, of course, it's so, uh, so crude and uh, absurd what is said about this, because the whole rest of the world outside of this North Atlantic region and the few strong uh, dependent allies of the United States in Asia know perfectly well this is a good, meaningful thing. And so this was a big success of China because not a propaganda or a narrative, but because China's Belt and Road Initiative makes full sense. Uh, and that's the, the basic point. And it's building modern infrastructure. And that's good. Connectivity is good. And so you know, the West is uh, in this uh, anachronistic uh, mode that is uh, absolutely spinning out of control. And China's hosting uh, countries from around the world aiming for sustainable development. It's quite a contrast this past week. Can I just also say the, the contrast is that the Chinese BRIC states, they seem to be looking forward. They're coming up with constructive solutions. And going back to the Middle East, they're actually making proposals about how to move forward to resolve the situation in the Middle East. They're calling for a ceasefire. We see Russia, Brazil, the UAE working in the Security Council to try to get a ceasefire. And now they're talking about an international conference to try to sort out the problems in the Middle East, to sort out this, this crisis we have in the Middle East, the, to put it on a track to a sustainable solution. And no one in the West seems to be doing the same thing. We're looking, as it seems to me, we're looking backwards all the time. They're, they're, they're looking 
much more practically in a forward way, forward-looking way. I, I think that that is uh, absolutely right. And, and it's also, if, if, if we should grab at some glimmers of uh, optimism, there is absolutely nothing fundamental that uh, should block the U.S. and Europe from saying, you know what, we've, we've had uh, a wrong approach. Uh, we don't dominate the world. We don't run the world uh, as if this is uh, late 19th century uh, Western imperialism. We need a cooperative approach. You know, if we did that, that would not weaken uh, European security or the United States security. It would not lead to, uh, you know, an invasion by the United States. It would not lead to a collapse of uh, the U.S. economy. All to the contrary, it would lead to a sigh of relief around the world. Oh, my God. You know, your fever has broken. Uh, this uh, hallucinatory moment you've been in, uh, you know, during your uh, high fever is over. Uh, you're, you've woken up. Welcome back to the family of nations. You know, I, I don't mean to uh, uh, sound uh, absurd, but there's nothing fundamental that leads us to this kind of block mentality. Uh, and it was an approach that the U.S. took based on extraordinarily out-of-date hubris that didn't make sense even when it wasn't so extraordinarily out-of-date. But the U.S. could actually change its foreign policy without doing a, an iota of damage to U.S. interests at all. And it could happen. Europe, I have hoped and I continue to hope, can wake up to some of this. Because if Europe actually says, you know, this isn't working so well for us. We're in a deep recession. Uh, our China's our marketplace. China's our, we share Eurasia with China. So we should partner our global gateway and China's Belt and Road. Uh, we can meet in Samarkand, as I like to say, you know, one going from east to west, the other from west to east. That's the whole idea of the Silk Roads. It was connecting Europe and China back in the day of the Roman Empire and the Han Empire. So this is 2,000 years uh, uh, of uh, constructive uh, relations if we choose to have it. And it's a little... I, I didn't see the full readout, but uh, I did see uh, the EU high representative, uh, Josep Borrell, going to China saying, take us seriously, take us seriously. We're, we're, we're a geopolitical power. OK, fair enough. If you stop acting so absurdly as a de facto a, a vassal of the United States, maybe mm. Europe would be taken a lot more seriously and should be taken a lot more seriously. This has been Europe's terrible misstep uh, of saying, okay, we follow the U.S. in lockstep, but maybe these events uh, will open up European eyes. That would be enough, actually, to force a reassessment by the United States, because the, the whole U.S. bargain is delusional right now. We lead the world when 80% of the world says, no, you don't. Don't do it. But if Europe peels off and says, you know, we're not so keen on how this is unfolding, that would 
absolutely force a reassessment by the United States before we go closer and closer to global war. And we're heading in that direction if the United States doesn't change course and come out uh, with a a different foreign policy uh, that is based on the idea of cooperation under under the UN charter and under true international law, not under the rules as the U.S. wants them to be. Mm. I just would quickly add, and speaking from Britain, and you're absolutely right, by the way, about what you said about Britain, this fixation on trying to be a great power, especially in the case of Britain, when you are not, one effect it has is that it distracts us in Britain from addressing our very pressing and growing internal problems. If you live in Britain, you will know exactly what I mean. We have been living off the legacy of empire, and that is frittering away, thank goodness. And the result is that we are becoming less adapted to the changes of the modern world than we should be. And can I also say, coming back again to the Middle East, I am absolutely, perhaps this is controversial, I think this is an entirely solvable problem. <laughs> I think this is a point I really do want to make because many people tell me that it is insoluble. I don't buy it. I think it can be resolved. I think if you speak to people on both sides, Palestinians and Israelis, there is a weariness and a desire to find peace. And I think that you can build on that. And obviously there's people with maximalist objectives on each side, but I don't think they're anywhere close to being even a significantly large minority. That's my own personal view. I agree with that completely. Uh, And uh, even the issue of the militants can be solved by a broader diplomatic solution because that would end uh, the, even the capacity of these uh, absolute uh, uh, extremist elements to uh, be able to uh, subsist in this environment. So a solution obviously can be found. Uh, it could be still the long talked about, but uh, much evaded two-state solution, or it even could be uh, a, a democratic one-state solution. Uh, Both are possible. But and what is absolutely true is that it would be possible to reach an understanding with the uh, Arab nations, the Arab League and and, uh, the neighbors in the region with Iran. I will also add absolutely possible. Uh, I speak to a lot of Iranian diplomats uh, over the years, and of course there could be uh, agreements uh, reached. Uh, so there's nothing out of grasp. What is out of uh, grasp uh, to this date is the result of an incredible arrogance and hubris uh, and a lack of honesty about the core of uh, this crisis. Same in Ukraine. Uh, when you know the underpinnings of the crisis, when you know the evolution of how we got to this uh, dreadful place, a solution could be found tomorrow, actually. Uh, And uh, it uh, goes back to the same 
hubris of the United States saying we don't have to talk to Russia about anything, about our missile uh, placements, about our NATO enlargement, uh, about uh, coups that we back uh, in uh, next door countries. We don't have to talk about anything. And that hubris brings us to war. But by overcoming the hubris, we could actually get to peace. I just uh, final comment. I think uh, I, I think uh, what yeah, Professor Sachs referred to as this block mentality. I think a lot of this is a again a manifestation of the he- hegemonic uh, strategy because uh, obviously you know you have two kind of security institutions. You have the one we pursue security with other members, and then you have the alliances or blocks where you seek security against non-members and uh and in, in this instance you see often there's this need always to divide you know between the protected or dependent ally and the weakened adversary which is why uh if we look at why there's no peace uh well, well one could look at what happened when the chinese negotiated you know this uh, settlement or peace between iran and saudi arabia uh washington was very much opposed to it and you know we saw the same was it three years ago when the chinese and indians were having a clash in the himalayas uh if you saw the american media the new york times they were all very excited and very openly stating listen this is a great opportunity uh, with india in the conflict with china they will have to align with us you know they will be dependent on us and we have a powerful ally to weaken the chinese so it just seems like there's a uh, there's this uh, always this uh, yeah block mentality in order to achieve hegemony. So, well, that that's I guess why to some extent I'm a bit more optimistic uh, about BRICS because it doesn't seem like an alliance system. I, I know that they're trying to uh, counter hegemony, but but if you see the new members they took in, I mean Egypt and Ethiopia, they're in conflict over you know the water. Uh, they bring in uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Obviously, they are you know the main Cold War in the Middle East. Uh, and there seems to be, uh, yeah, and this doesn't seem like an alliance that Iran and Saudi Arabia will turn against America together. It, it, it's not going to happen. It seems more being security with other members as opposed to, you know, allying against state C. So uh, it seems to be, I'm not sure if this is because uh, the objective of hegemony is absent, but uh, uh, I'm not sure if uh, you two have any thoughts on it before we wrap it up. Well, Glenn, uh, we could uh, refer back uh, 2,000 years to divide et impera, divide and conquer. Uh, This has been strategies of empires uh, throughout the ages uh, that you divide the other side. Uh, You create those divisions. You divide and you conquer. And this has been a U.S. foreign policy approach. Uh, It it fails. It's failing miserably right now because the U.S. uh, has uh, lost uh, any semblance of the power, whether it's military dominance, technological dominance or financial dominance, to be able to carry that out as dreadful as it was even when the U.S. was uh, relatively uh, more powerful than it is today. But that has been the strategy. The alternative strategy is true multipolarity uh, and true multilateralism under a common set of international laws, uh, which uh, at our core today uh, are the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations. We could have a world that is peaceful, united, and pursuing sustainable development if we choose to do so. And we need to put aside the hegemonic uh, aspirations and the 
divide et impera strategy uh, of uh, U.S. foreign policy, and then we can make some progress. I have little to add to that. I'll just say this. My impression is that most of the world, not the global south, the global majority, I think that was Professor Sachs' term, and I think it's the one we should increasingly use. They they understand what this is, you know, setting countries against each other, China against Russia. We see articles in foreign affairs that talk about, you know, we must the Russians they need to find strategic autonomy from the Chinese, so they need to turn to turn to us. That kind of thinking. The Indians and the Chinese are opposed to each other. So let's find ways of exacerbating this and get India on our side. I think most of the world is exhausted by this. I think they're fed up with it. And I think that um, basically what we're seeing and what we're seeing now with this current crisis is they're saying enough of this. We have to move on. The world has changed. It's also changed profoundly in economic and technological terms. We have to get on. We, it is in our interests to. It is in the interests of our people to get on. We have to get on because we cannot afford war. And war is too dangerous to be uh, indulged with, indulged in, in the way that perhaps, you know, 200 years it could be. And these attempts by you in the West to continue these obsolete and anachronistic block policies and manipulative policies. We've had enough. And if you don't join us, well, we'll just go ahead and do it without you. And that's, I think, that's, I think, where we're going. Beautifully put. Yeah, no, I agree. I think just to Europe, we're in a very new position. We've always been the subject. I think we're becoming the object now of geopolitics because now we are being put in the division of uh you know, uh, uh, we're being asked to cut ourselves off from the Russians, from the Chinese. We're also absent there and becoming very, very uncomfortably dependent on the United States. So, you know, they were, we're usually at the other end of this. But uh, anyways, uh, we went a bit over time, but uh, anyway, I just want to thank both of you for your time. Uh, Professor Sachs, uh, Alexander, excellent. So, uh, so much more I would like to talk about the prospect of a BRICS currency or alternatives, but we have to do this <laughs> some other time, I guess. So, let's, let's do that too. Thanks again need, for your time. We need, to, we, need to just, we need to have more programs, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Great. I agree.